podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Oh, the shark bait has such teeth there, and it shows them pearly white. So welcome everybody to this latest episode of Macklin's Take with me, Andy Clark and Matt Macklin. Hope everybody is well. Just looking out the window of my uh, of my study, the, the sun is shining. Got my hair cut on Saturday for the first time in a in a few months, which was very welcome. I get my first dose of the vaccine this afternoon, so it kind of feels to me, at least, like like everything is is beginning to come together, like we're heading back towards some kind of normality. Today's guest. Definitely isn't going to agree with me on the on the second part due to my due to my vaccination. He's not he's not a great supporter of it. We're, we're not going to get into that in a, in any in any huge in any huge detail. Macklin, how are you? Yeah, I'm not bad. You're not talking about me, are you? Or are you? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking about you. So, so. Well, I just need to correct you there, Andy, because I'm I'm not anti-vax. My all my children have been vaccinated, but um, I know what you're touching on, and and just to just to. Confirm what you're saying. I, I won't be taking part in the um, biological trial that's going on at the minute. Um, but each to their own. If you fancy, um, if you fancy um, getting yourself a jab for the COVID nineteen, then go right ahead. But I'm going to trust my immune system. Thank you very much. Well, that's our guest, Carl the Cobra Frotch. He needs no introduction, and he's just introduced himself. So perfect, perfect, seamlessly, seamlessly done. And uh, yeah. There you go. You heard it from the man himself there. He's going to exercise his right not to have it. We're not here to talk about, about COVID-19. We haven't talked about that really in any detail at all during the course of the uh, the podcast uh, the last 13, 14 months. But one thing I am interested by, and we will get on to talk about other things today because we'll have a look back on the card at the weekend. We'll have a look ahead to Canelo against Saunders because Carl's going over to Texas uh, for that. So for us, this is a little bit unusual. It's not what we generally do but um we were kind of wondering at the end of last week what should we do this week because we're recording this on monday um which is a bit later than we normally do and we were sitting around in the manchester arena having our chicken tikka masala naan bread and brownie and then uh and then a vision appeared in the form of a cobra and we thought well who better who better for next week than um the than the cobra himself so so that's how this is that's how this has happened but going back to what we were just mentioning there would i be right in thinking that during the course of your boxing career, you did avoid as much as you possibly could any kind of medicinal treatment or, or intervention. Um, I remember reading an article, I think it was written by Ben Durs, um, about 10 years ago when you were talking about, I think you'd had some pins or or staples or something in your hand or, or thumb at one point, and they went to take them out and they offered you an anaesthetic and they couldn't quite believe it when you said that you didn't want it. Um, because this is quite interesting, I think, for a fighter's approach, an athlete's approach. Is that how you always looked at it, that that you didn't want anything injected into you or you didn't want anything administered to you? You wanted to trust your own your own powers of recovery as much as you could. Yeah, 100%. That that started um, when my grandma, my mother's um, my mother's mum, she developed breast cancer. She was only 66 and she went through the whole procedure of, um, of chemotherapy and then radiotherapy and then of course a very very low success rate with that treatment and she she eventually died a few years later um and I did a lot of reading um a lot of different books on on holistic health and modern medicine and big pharma you know the billion pound industry that pharmaceutical company is 
and I, I kind of the penny dropped and I realized that um, I don't know how without going into a real deep rabbit hole here, <clears throat> a pharmaceutical companies and, and drugs industry and doctors, modern doctors, they just manage symptoms. They don't cure problems. You know, if you've got damp in a house, I've got houses I, I, I look after. And if I've got damp, you can go in there and put a lick of paint over the damp and it will last a few few weeks but eventually that damp will come through what you need to do is you need to sort the damp out correctly by getting to the root of the problem um put a damp course in drill the holes in the bricks and get the get the cavity filled up and then the damp will not come back so i treat my body like that if there's a problem or an ailment i don't go to the doctors say for example if i've got a chest infection or a bad cold which i don't often get but i do get run down with a cold every now and again in the in the autumn i don't go to the doctors and say i'm coughing and i, I can't breathe as good as I, I should can you help me and then they'll just give you a dose of amoxicillin antibiotics and write off all your immune system what I do is i drink distilled water alkaline water i take high doses of vitamin c eat lots of fruit and raw vegetables and two weeks later lo and behold i'm back out there and i'm running the show again absolutely drug free um you know the body the human body wants to survive if you provide your body with enough vitamins and minerals and the correct nutrition every day your body will heal itself. It's as simple as that. A lot of it starts in the mind. But like I said, if I start going into meditation and going too deep, we'll end up going spiritual. And before you know it, this will be a totally different podcast. But yes, you're right. I avoid drugs now completely. But during my boxing career, I was guilty of taking a drug called declofenic sodium, which is a massive anti-inflammatory because my elbows were so sore and my hands were sore. Matthew Macklin will know what it's like to have bad hands and sore elbows. And when you don't fully understand how the body works, <laughs> you do. You want a quick fix. A lot of people want a quick fix, you know. Um, but when you understand and you do your research and you learn how the body works, there's so many alternatives to um, modern medicine, which I'm not a big fan of. Like I said earlier, I'm, I'm not anti-vax or anything like that, but I just trust my own body, trust my own immune system, eat clean and healthy, avoid alcohol, smoke, drugs, avoid all that. And... I feel great, mate. I feel like I'm thriving. I feel like a machine. <laughs> it's, um, I guess there probably must have been points during your career, and you just mentioned some of the things you did have to take away. You've got no choice but to, but to do it. I remember talking to you last last summer. We were speaking to you about the fight against Jermaine Taylor, and and you had a problem with your eye. And I think yeah, at that I got point, scratch on my eye, reoccurring corneal erosion, and whatever the American doctors gave me, it sorted in about thirty seconds. But it was like a steroid-based substance and was a bit worried about maybe failing the drug test because of that. But I was fine. Um, but again, it was early on in my career. I was quite naive. I wasn't as educated as what I am now. I did a sports science and phys ed course at Loughborough University and diet and nutrition was part of the syllabus. And then you, I, I met up with a, a diet and nutritionist in um, <coughs> it was Mark Ellison at the EIS in Sheffield. And then you start to learn a bit more how the body works and complex carbohydrates and proteins and when to eat them. And you just, you just develop knowledge and then you use that knowledge to help yourself. But I mean, I think I don't want to give the medical profession too much stick because the one thing about, about the medical profession that I do agree with that I think are absolute geniuses. And these are the people that should be getting MBEs, OBEs and even knighthoods and that's surgeons and people that invent machines like MRI scanners and stuff, because I've had five surgeries in my career, um, two on my hand, I've had my elbows sorted, I've had an ACL reconstruction on my knee, and I've had, I've had a, you wouldn't know, but I've had a septo rhinoplasty, because um, <laughs> you know by looking at me. <laughs> but um, you wouldn't know I was a boxer, would you, Matt, with this view? Uh, uh, different but, um, 
<laughs> yeah, after my after my cruciate ligament <clears throat> reconstruction, for example, before I said I don't want any drugs going into this. Just give me the anaesthetic because I'd, I'd like to. I, I asked them if they could keep me awake while they did it, and they said we could try and numb you with a with an epidural. So we numb your bottom part of your body, like when women give birth. Some women have the epidural, so you could be awake whilst we do the knee up. He said, but I wouldn't recommend it because you'd be like. Your pain might kick in while we're working on it, and if you start panicking or whatever, then we won't be able to get the procedure done as good. And it's quite a, it's quite a technical reconstructive surgery, the um, anterior cruciate ligament. And I, I popped that, and I had to get my lateral ligament as well, and my posterior ligament was slightly torn as well. So they wanted to have a look at that and sort out the meniscus, which is the cartilage in the knee. So it was quite a big op. So I said, you know what, just just put me under, no problem. It's not going to do me any long term damage as long as I wake up. I'll be, uh, I'll be, I'll be happy. But when I came out, my knee was sore and the, the nurse came in with the, um, what's that stuff to put into your morphine? And I was like, oh no, don't worry about the morphine. I'm, I'm all good. She goes, oh, you're going to be in a lot of pain later. I went, yeah, but pain is weakness leaving the body. John J. Rambo style. Let's just, <laughs> let's just stitch it up. Let's just stitch it up without the, uh, without the numbing <laughs> ingredients. And um, yeah, it was all a bit shocked and I did feel a bit of pain, but let's be honest, it wasn't that bad. When you feel pain, your body releases a natural sort of anti-pain and, um, just natural chemicals, endorphins are releasing your body and your body copes with the pain and regulates it. And you know where you are then. You know when what's hurting, you know how much it hurts, so you know what you can and can't do. If you have painkillers in something, all of a sudden you're up and walking around. People take painkillers for bad backs. Then they're doing more damage to the back, for example. If you don't take the painkillers, you know what not to do because when you do it, your body tells you and you think, ow, oh, that hurts. So you lie down or you don't bend over so far. So that's just how I do it now and that's how I've always done it for the last probably 10 years or so. And it served me well. I remember after the Pascal fight, I had um, quite a bad cut above my left eye. And the doctor came in and he pulled his needle out of the bag. And I went, can you stitch that up just like, just go straight in, John J. Rambo style? And he went, well, I can do, but it will, it will sting a bit. I went, yeah, but I've just, I've just done 12 rounds with Pascal. Honestly, I'm on a high. I've just won. I'm WBC champ. Look at that golden green belt. I went, just get in there. Let's, let's do it. And I was just smiling away while he was... It's only a little pinprick for your eye. Come on, it's not like, you know, I mean, it's not cutting your arm off, is he, and restitching it back on. So, yeah, I had my stitches without any um, painkilling injections. It doesn't, I, I'm waiting for you, Matt, to say, oh, you're hard, like David Brennan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to make out I'm hard or something, but trust me, women give birth without medication. And I've, I've watched three, I've watched my wife go through three, three childbirths. It's three, you know, it's, it's brutal. It's, it's barbaric. I mean, I was in the hospital thinking, is this how it is? Is this how it's supposed to be? Can you not help her? Can you do something else? And it's awful, mate. It's, it's just the most primitive, barbaric thing I've ever seen. So I ain't going to complain about having a few stitches in my eye and having a needle put through the, the surface of my skin because it's not hard work. And to take drugs and painkillers and all sorts of... Um... Anyway, I'll come off my soapbox now, but that's, that's me. I'm, I'm very holistic and very natural. And um, I, it's serving me well. I've got a good immune system. I've just got over a quite a bad cold, actually. I've had a real bad nose and sinuses, and then it got into my chest for about a week or so. I'm at the other side of it. I've done a COVID test, and I was negative, so it's all good. Yeah, and I feel great. I feel really good. Now, it's interesting stuff, though. It, it is because, you know, boxers, more than probably any other, all athletes have to manage pain. We know that. that there's, there's stress and strain on the body, but boxers have to actually condition yourselves to pain because there's no possible way unless you win by by a quick first round knockout mat that it's not in the post it's coming you you some you've got to be prepared for 
a level of it that very very few other people will will experience. And how about you? I mean, you, for, for that reason, do you think fighters are less likely to kind of reach for medical help necessarily because because they that threshold with them is is maybe that much mentally is maybe that much higher than it is with with other people i think mentally they could probably withstand pain better but i don't know if they have the education or the knowledge uh around the subject like as carl told you that he, he went he, he done a lot of reading about holistic treatment after his mom so that's that's where and he's obviously followed that path and, and read more and more and more on it and, and he's a believer in that now so i think that i think it's more that than whether boxers can withstand the pain or not it's whether you're aware of these things i mean <clears throat> i'm very similar in the sense that if i have like a chest infection or something like that i don't i don't take antibiotics i just load up on vitamin c i drink more water i get more rest it'll it might take a few days longer than it would if i went on a course of antibiotics but i know i'm keeping my immune system strong where you're not drinking antibi- the tap water are you matt either no the kangan i go on the kangan the yeah, alkaline yeah. you ain't putting that you ain't turning that tap on that council pot <laughs> getting that down him <laughs> but no but yeah you know it's important it, it, to alkaline your water alkaline water and get your body flushed out just naturally and, and your body will take care of itself don't it Matt that's what happened it does yeah, yeah this is a human body you look back at it it's an amazing thing it, 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 like you say if there's, if there's something wrong it'll tell you where it's wrong if you're tired it tells you you're tired you know what I mean if you're, if you're, if you're deficient in sugar or whatever it'll, you, you, there, will be, there will be a sign it will tell you if you listen to your body it will basically tell you so it's just becoming more in touch with yourself I think hey hey kid Hey, kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health. Thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called The Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! Okay, well, we'll we'll, we'll move that on there, but um, it's just something I'm interested in as to how athletes go about managing pain, managing injuries, their approach to it, and I think... As you said, I think education is is absolutely key if you put the time in uh, and put the work in. And and not everybody wants to do that because it is quite an academic thing. It's a study-based thing. And... Funnily enough, though, just sorry, just quickly interrupting you. I mean, early on in my career, I had a few injuries with different things and I pulled out of fights. And later on in my career, at the end, for, the, for big fights, I was way more injured and went through it and got through the camp and tried to get round it whichever way I could. And then went into the fight not as best prepared as I could have been, as best prepared as I could have been under the circumstances, not for the want of willingness or training harder. That COVID. But, but because of injuries and different things, do you know what I mean? But at that stage in your career, it was like, well, you know, maybe you're always going to be injured now, where early on I was young, I didn't really want to create a problem for further down the line, do you know what I mean? So early, it wasn't about going through the pain, I suppose. It was more the fact that I thought I've got my whole career ahead of me. And I don't want to create a problem. But like you say, pain's there to protect us, isn't it? So if you're going through the pain, that's okay. But there's probably going to be more damage done. And then it's going to hamper me in my career. So early on, I didn't want to do that so much. But at the end of my career, God, I was, I was going through every fight with injuries. 
People do ask you, don't they, Matt? Well, I don't know if they've asked you, but they say, oh, doesn't it hurt to get punched in the face? How can you box and that? But when you box since, I mean, how old were you when you started boxing? You was young like me, weren't you? Ten. Like, ten, yeah. See, I was about eight or nine years old when I walked in the gym with my older brother because he was 10. I'm a couple of years younger than him. Started mm. competing at about 10 or 11. I think it's 11 now. To 11. I'm sure, I'm sure I was 10, but maybe I wasn't. I boxed Jason Booth in my first fight. And people will say, does it hurt? And I'm like, listen, if you if you punch me in the nose now with a 10 ounce glove on, it'd really sting and hurt. And I'd be really annoyed. I'd probably punch you back because it's not nice. My 10 year old son can punch him in the stomach and it hurts. But when you're prepared for battle, when you're, when you've gone through all the training camp, <clears throat> the hard sparring and the, the, the early morning runs and the aches and pains and injuries, and you've made weight and then you're in the frame of mind that you're fighting and the nerve kicking. So I don't care what your name is, Mike Tyson or whatever, you get nervous. It's just how you cope with the nerves. Um, your body is ready for battle and ready for the pain. And you get jabbed in the face in round one on the end of the nose, or you get a cut above your eye, you, you know, you get your eardrum perforated and you feel it. Of course you feel it, but it's, it's not at the top of the list of, oh, now I've got to worry about this pain I'm in. Your top of your list is I've got to hit him back and I've got to score points and I've got to win this fight. And what the body can go through and what it can pull up with pain threshold wise is amazing when you're in the right frame of mind, when you're ready for battle. There is no pain. You don't feel it. Like women, like I said about women earlier, women in childbirth, some of them don't feel the pain. They scream away because they're pushing and they're driving away. But the pain they're in is immense. Some women give birth without making a, making a sound, and that's because the body's made that adjustment. So I think boxers do have a decent high pain threshold, but they're ready for battle. The body's full of the adrenaline and the natural endorphins and it takes all that away, Andy, and, and to the listeners. So we're not we're not superhuman. We'll get as close to superhuman as we can through a training camp, put ourselves, put our bodies through it. But we feel pain like anybody. It's just a mindset. It's a frame of mind. And that's what I'm saying about the power of the mind is so important with anything in life. You've got to just keep your mind strong, keep yourself mentally focused and, and believing in yourself with, with anything. And most things are achievable if the mind believes. They really are. It's, it's fascinating. We talked about Tyson Fury earlier, and he's 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 gone through a, a drug addiction and a drinking problem, and he's he's ballooned out of weight. He's still got a bit of weight around his stomach and his hips and his around his waist. I I noticed the other day when he was jumping around with his underpants on on that Instagram video he did. He still looks like he's a bit out of shape, but he's obviously fit and strong, and he's mentally so so aware and so so confident. I don't think it matters. But, um, but yeah, you've got to trust in the body and believe in yourself and just steer away from that um, that chemist. Just don't go near it. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about uh, a bit of fury a little bit later on. But just kind of one more on this, because it does tie in with, with a fight that I'm keen to talk about from the weekend, which is James Tennyson against Giovanni Straffon. Matt talks sometimes when we're commentating on fights about how a fighter might look a bit shocked by the opponent's power early on, or rather they're finding it difficult to deal with. And then two or three rounds in, you're kind of used to it. You've you've Mm. managed to get yourself conditioned to it. So how does that process work? Because as you're describing it there, it's not really about pain. It's not like, wow, that really hurt, but you must feel, okay, that's a heavy punch. These are heavy hands that are coming at me here. Heavier yeah, than don't... I, heavier than I thought. How do you go about kind of absorbing that and 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 being able to take it? Hundred percent. That I mean, if I if I can take this, Matt, then I'm obviously going to. But when you say hurt, if I ever said I've been hurt or he's hurt me there, 
it's not hurt as in, oh, my eyes stinging, or my nose is sore, or my eardrum's perforated, or my ribs really sore. That might be pain, yes. But hurt for me in the boxing ring is either getting winded really bad of a body shot that, you know, really does you. I'm, I'm lucky. I've been, I've been hitting the body a few times, but never been totally incapacitated where I can't breathe. Not in the boxing ring anyway. My big brother's bashed me a few times when I was, when I was younger. And I've been rolling around on the floor and not being able to breathe because whatever happens to you when you get done in the solar plexus and you die. Matt Macklin knows what it's like when he was in there with Golovkin. I mean, he got folded in half like a deck chair. Sorry, Matt, but <laughs> you can't breathe and you're on the floor and you can't get up. I've never had that in the boxing ring. I've been done to the body a few times by, by Kessler. He's hit me in the body and I thought, oh, where did that come from? Shit. And I, I back up, hold my breath, just suck it up and, and then you kind of recover. But a headshot, you get punched in the chin and your legs feel a bit uneasy like they're not under you and you feel like I don't know the space around your head just feels numb almost like you've had too much to drink and you just feel a bit like you can't keep your balance and that's being hurt that's that's getting hurt in the boxing ring not getting your nosebleed or getting a sting on your eye um, for me that's that's hurt and it's a power punch and when you feel a jab off Mikel Kessler who is left-handed naturally left-handed but he, he boxes out the orthodox position which means he, fight, he should be a southpaw because he's left-handed, but he's not his orthodox. So his jab basically is his big punch. That's his strong hand. So I remember fighting him in, in Denmark in Herning in the first time we boxed in the Super 6 World Boxing Classic Tournament. And he hit me with a jab in round one, right in between my eyes. Luckily, it missed the bridge of my nose, but it got me right in between the eyes on my head and it jolted my head back. And I thought to myself, what the bloody hell was that? What has he got in his gloves? It was a Did you not know he was jab. left-handed? Yeah, yeah, he's left-handed. But did you not know he was left-handed? I didn't know. I found out after. Yeah. <laughs> I don't suppose it would have made any difference. I don't think I'd have done anything different. But I can just remember thinking his jab was solid. I didn't really get hit with many jabs after that. I sort of kept tight his way through, through a load of feints and, and got, well, I was saying that. I did get bashed a little bit, to be honest. But I was trying to keep out of the way of his jab. But to answer your question, Andy, you get hit with a shot and you feel it and you think that's a hard shot. So you just you just try and be a bit sharper, try and slip off to the side a, a bit quicker, try and get your, your your glove in front of your face a bit quicker, try and avoid the punches, basically. It's kind of boxing is hit and don't get hit. That's ultimately the, what's your tactics in boxing? I mean, you always have, do I box? Do I take it to him? Do I just move to my left to keep out of the way of his, um, his big right hand or whatever, or move to my right to get out of the way of his right hand? You'll be tactics, but really the tactics are hit your opponent and don't get hit back. And that's easier said than done, because when you're trying to hit your opponent, guess what? You're in punching range and you get hit back. It's as simple as that. So after round one, two and three, when you've been caught of a couple of tough shots, well, in my experience anyway, your body and your brain kind of adapts and numbs to it. And, and you, be, you just get used to getting belted around the head and the effects aren't there. But that depends how, how solid your chin is. I mean, I got put down in round one with, against Groves and I got hit with far harder shots for the next six rounds. So after I'd got up in round one, my body had obviously done some kind of adaptation and switched onto it. It woke me up a bit, kept me more aware. And even though I was getting hit with clubbing shots after that, I never went back down on the, on the ground. But that's, I think that's my, my punch resistance and my ability to take a shot. That's my chin. You know what I mean? I've got a good punch resistance. You, you see with someone like Amir Khan, I was always going to dig Amir Khan out on a whole way. It was, all, it was always going to go down that road. But he gets iced, doesn't he? He gets ironed out on a regular basis. He gets hit on the chin and he spectacularly gets absolutely sparkode, L sparkode. But that's just the inability to take a punch right there. Mm. 
Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. I mean, the uh, for me, when, I, when you think about getting hurt with shots of pain and different things, and you'll have had this, Carl. Uh, I've had fights. And even going back in the amateur days and you're boxing someone and he's meant to be a massive puncher. And then you get in there with them and you think, oh, that ain't that bad. And you can get in there. And the flip to that is you can get in there with somebody you think is a complete non-puncher because you're not mentally prepared for it or you've got no respect for their yeah. power. They clip yeah. you with a shot and, you, and it buzzes you a bit. You think, fucking hell, I, weren't, I wasn't ready. Yeah. I wasn't expecting that. 100%. That's the frame of mind I was on about earlier. It's to prepare the mind for battle correctly. And if you, if you kind of know what to expect, then it's not such yeah. a shock. It's that shock. And and I go back to the Groves fight because I put Groves down in sparring a couple of times and I was sparring him when he was early on as a pro. And you know what it's like? Someone who's a top amateur, they turn pro. They're not good professionals. They've got to get seasoned. They've got to understand the game. I remember sparring Howard Eastman when I first turned pro at the Lennox Lewis College in Clapton in London with Rob McCracken in my corner. And Howard Eastman was pushing me around the ring, punching me around the body, hitting me with jabs to the head. And I was thinking, I want to go home. I don't want to turn pro. This was before I, t- before I turned professional. And I was thinking to myself, fuck that. I'm not turning pro. No chance. And then I sparred Wayne Alexander, who was a light middleweight, smaller than me. But he was a monster puncher, Wayne Alexander. Can you remember him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Champion. He knocked out Takaloo, didn't he, with that left arm? Yeah. Heavy-handed. And, like, and then a guy called Eric Timor as well. I was sparring him, a light heavyweight amateur. And I was just thinking to myself, I'm not, I'm not turning pro, not this side of the decade. But about six months later, I signed up pro under McCracken, as you know, and, and Mick Hennessy. And, and your body becomes, you get used to it and you get conditioned. I mean, not everybody goes through that process. And I think, I think people like, I bring Josh Kelly in, for example. I don't think he's probably had that hard sparring. He's not had them tough fights early on. And then when he jumped in with, was it Avanesian? He, yeah. he come on stuck because it was just too much for him. He was getting belted around the body, hit on the head. And I don't think he'd ever been there before. And you, get, you have quite privileged amateur careers as well. We never had that. We never had the funding and all the, all the massages and the, the nutrition. We just went down to Crystal Palace with our, with our suitcase, stayed in them digs, and then jumped in the gym. And I was jumping in with, with um, Courtney Fry and David Hay sparring, John Pierce, who are boxed in the, in the amateurs. And you just get thrashed. You get you get hammered around that course on the on the track outside. You go in the strength and conditioning room and just get drilled. And you go home. So you go there on a Friday. You go home on a Monday. And you can barely walk. But that was your training camp. And then you get chucked in a tournament with international Russians and Azerbaijans and Ukrainians. And you get your head punched in for four rounds. And you think, what's this all about? Don't get me wrong. You win a few. I won a medal in the World Championships. But it's a hard learning curve. And it toughens you. The amateurs now that are coming through, don't get me wrong, there's some fantastic amateurs, but they are looked after and, and mollycoddled a little bit. And, you know, the, if they've got an injury, they don't turn up and they sit in the physio room and sit there with an ice pack on for a session. We just used to get on with it, mate. So we're, we're built with the tough stuff. We're the, we're the last of the dying breed of the old generation. And we're going to have an even softer generation moving forward now with COVID because the gyms are closed and the lads aren't getting the sparring and they're not competing. So... We're going to have a bit of a gap moving forward. I've jumped from a subject to subject there, but I think we're the last of the dying breed of the old tough nuts. I really do. And, and it's changing now. And, um, yeah, I'm not sure it's going, to be, it's going to be great for the sport. Are the Olympics still on? Do you know, Andy, if the Olympics are still on this year? 
at the moment at the Olympics. At the moment, yes. Um, oh, I think it's a point of debate in Japan. I'm not sure it's it's particularly popular with with the, with the with the population there that so it's it going to happen. Year. It is this year. Yeah, right? it's this year. Yeah, it's this so year. I, they, I July the 23rd. Happened. July the when 23rd. Is, they start. July 23rd. Because I'm I'm sure that obviously there might be a collision there, a collision course with Rob McCracken and Anthony Joshua fighting fighting yeah, Fury. That, that's a potential problem because mm. Rob is performance director for GB Boxing. Will have to be at the Olympics and. Yeah. July the 24th wouldn't be possible for him um, to be in Anthony's corner, nor would the week after, nor would the week after that. Um, so if it were to be the 24th or the 31st or the 7th, then he's got a problem. August the 14th, I think he'd be clear by clear by then. But it, it is an interesting subject you, you did jump onto there because it is definitely a, a fine dividing line. And the coaches at GB, I think, would agree if you spoke to them and if you spoke to Rob about it, between having the best of everything in terms of recovery and, and nutrition and science, as you said there, but not taking away that, that edge. And I think with, with the situation at Sheffield and you know, much better than me, Carl, cause you, you, you've been up there a lot is that there's, there's no life of luxury away from the gym for them. The digs are pretty Spartan. Um, they're pretty basic where, where the athletes are, are living. And I think what? I'm, not so, I'm but, not so sure about that. Compared to that larger Listen. crystal palace <laughs> that 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 high rise of apartments or whatever they were, high rise block of flats at Crystal Palace. That was like the gulag. That was like the wall. That was the war zone. And these guys are staying in the Premier Inn. Listen, when I stay at the Premier Inn, I feel like I'm in a five star hotel. I don't know about you. And all the breakfast laid on for you. You get downstairs and help yourself to a bowl of porridge and some fruit, and you got someone serving you some toast and scrambled eggs. So no, I don't know, mate. It, it, I don't know if it's that Spartan. I'm talking spit, dust, blood, sweat, and tears. And, um, being malnourished as well throughout my career, we never I'd, had that. Okay, but I mean, do you see what I mean? Though it is, it is a difficult balance to get right, isn't it, or, or is it not? I've just been to a, a big international tournament, the Youth World Championships, and you see, you see the Russian team and the Uzbekistan team and the, and the Kazakhs and, and the Azeris, as you said, and the Ukrainians and and the Cubans, and and what they're still kind of famous for is how tough their schools are, the academies that they'll get taken away to at a young age, um, the national setup for Cuba uh, at a young age. And the way they do it still, I think, is to try and keep it as much like it used to be as yeah. it as it as it always as it always was. And what one one school of thought within pro boxing at the minute is that the reason that a lot of these Eastern European Central Asian fighters who are turning over the reason that they're doing so well is that they've still got that hunger and that desire to achieve because they because their boxing upbringings were tough still. 100%. Yeah, I agree. I don't know how you, how you feel, Matt, but I think that hunger and that that need for it, that need for the boxing, and you know, that's what makes that's a massive part of your game when you're in the ring. Like, for example, me when I grew up, I had quite a rough upbringing. I'm not going to start talking about how rough my upbringing was. It wasn't as rough as some people I know, but. My mum and dad split up when I was six years old and I had to learn to become like self-sufficient from a very young age. And I realised if I don't look after myself, no one's going to look after me. So me and my older brother, Liam, my younger brother, he was, he was four years younger than me, we kind of stuck together. And my mum and dad split up and, you know, I had a stepdad I didn't get on with. And then I was back at my dad's and he had a different girl down <laughs> every weekend. He had a different different girl. It's, they didn't claim to be my mum or anything, but it was just a strange one. And me and my brothers, we used to get up to all sorts of mischief and, you know, when you've been through that, then you start boxing and you haven't got anything, but you borrow someone's skipping rope and you use somebody else's gloves and you've got a pair of trainers with your toe hanging out. You kind of, 
when you're going through that, you appreciate the finer things. You know, you go to the England squad, they give you a vest and, you know, and they try their best to get you a pair of boxing boots if, if you haven't got a pair. And it's like a luxury, you know. Even at the Crystal Palace, as bad as it was and as horrible as it was, it was like all being looked after here. The pain from my train down there. We never got paid, did we, Matt? And the amateurs, like they're doing now. I mean, they get paid. Imagine getting paid to box amateur. Towards the end, I got a bit of funding. But these guys are on big bunts, mate, like three, four grand a, week, a month, some of them, off the lottery funding. But um, the, what, what you were saying was the way the Ukrainians and the Russians do it, it's tough, the school. They go in there, they've got very primitive, they've probably got no televisions and they're up early and they're eating rubbish, boring foods and it's hard for them. And it makes them mentally tough. It, it makes them certain people. Like I wouldn't want my son Rocco, and he probably wouldn't want it either, to go through what I went through. I came out of boxing at 15, got back into it at 19. So from 15 to 19... Like 18 and 19, when I was holding different jobs down, I realized, hang on a minute, I'm getting paid 700 quid a month. I can barely put fuel in my car. I can barely put food in my fridge. I'm, I'm on my ass here. But if I box, I can actually make a few quid. And I got like 36 grand as a signing bonus to turn professional from Hennessy Sports. 36 grand in my bank. I was like, I've won the lottery here. This is big money. Like, it's massive money. It's not as big as you think. And I, I wasn't stupid with it. I actually put it down on deposit on my first house. But I thought to myself, I can, I can change my life here. And I want to change my life for the better. So getting up and doing running runs and jumping in the ring with Howard Eastman and getting my head punched in and thinking, this is hard, this is tough. But the reason I stayed with it and stuck with it is because I was going to earn some money and get paid and get a better life. Now, if you chuck someone in who's been privileged all their life, like my son, and I try not to spoil him, but you take him down the boxing gym and ask him to dig deep and go through injuries and bite down on his gum shield, you know, when he's coming home and he's got his PlayStation and his Xbox and his iPad and his set of golf clubs and he can down luxury golf club and, you know, the lives he's got. He goes to a private school and he gets looked after. And I look after him because I want to look after him because I want him to have a nice life. He's not mentally built to get in there and box and be a successful boxer because he won't have it in his head mentally. He's just, he'll be mentally tough and he'll be as street as he can be, but... Do you know what I'm saying, Matt? He won't have that toughness and that hunger where, and that desire where he's like, I, not only do I want this, I need it. I need it badly. And when you've got that desire and that hunger, that's when you go that extra round or that extra mile and you're getting up and you're really, really trying to achieve as opposed to just ticking over and you'll end up getting beaten and lose. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. And that's why historically and traditionally boxing and boxers that have generally hit the top have come from underprivileged backgrounds. Yeah, Not working all, class. But, 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 but definitely that's, been, that's generally how it's been. And, and when you talk about those countries like the Ukraine and some of those boxers, Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, you know, they've got absolutely nothing, have they? When they come, you know what I mean? Like literally being on the national team. Yeah. But, you know, we, we've seen the conditions are tough. 
that that's them being looked after. No, exactly. And the Cubans as well. The Cubans get very little. It's almost third world in a lot of the parts where they they grow up and train, and they're just absolutely mustard. I mean, they stay a lot of the a lot of these fighters we're talking about from Eastern blocks and, and obviously Cuba, which is which is an Eastern block, but it's it's still very underprivileged. These these guys are just really really top level fighters as well because they don't turn professional like we do. I mean, I lost to a guy called Andre Gagayev, I think his name was, in the World Championship semi final. And he was 35 years old and he was a, he was a Russian Marine. <laughs> and I can remember him round one hit with a jab from the southpaw position. Then I left cross, felt like it broke my collarbone. Got a massive lump on it now still. And I hit him with a right hand and my hand was sore. Hit him on the top of the head. And he was just tall and rangy and stood there with his guard up like boom, boom. Hit him with his clubbing shots. I had a right go at him. I caught him with a couple of big digs. And if I'd have pushed it on, I believed in myself a bit more. Who knows? But I got beat in the semi-final by a grown man who would have probably taken out most professionals. On the on the on the professional on the British professional, so he'd have probably been British champion the next day if he'd have fought for it against some of the British champions at the time back then. And and we're amateur boxing, you know, doing two week training camps at Crystal Palace and nipping down there the odd weekend and jumping in with these guys. It's it's not fair, really, is it? I mean, the guys now, the amateurs now, get the training camps and they get the funding, so we're getting more success at the Olympics now. Um, and I talked about it being moddy coddled earlier, so it's kind of a contradiction. But they're fitter and they're stronger physically, these fighters now, the, the amateurs, because they're getting looked after and they've got the funding and they're full-time athletes. But what we're talking about with the, um, the underprivilegedness, that's the mindset, that's the, that's the desire. And that's, that's what makes everything run. The computer in that head, the brain, that's what pushes you through to achieve anything. And I don't think a lot of the kids coming through now have got that hunger that they need. It's a funny one because when Carl's talking there about the Lennox Lewis Academy with Derek Timor and Howard Eastman and sparring, you know, he's obviously like he's a top class amateur, he's signed over, big things are expected. Well, you know, bronze medal in the world championships, but then these sparring guys like Derek Timor, Howard Eastman, who are, you know, I don't know, however many years into their professional career, that's hard sparring. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, it was tough. Obviously, Carl's tough, but you get that. It's tough as your people. You think you're tough, and then you get toughened up some more, don't yeah, you? Tough for me up. Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. I, I, tough. Tough. I went to bed crying a few nights with ice packs <laughs> on my nose, thinking, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> well, when I, when I saw Michael Conlon pro and he signed with Top Rank, I, re I really wanted him to do a year or two in America. So, we, you know, I, he, he listened to me and he went over there and done it. He's done a year. He stayed with uh, Manny Robles' gym. And it wasn't necessarily that I thought Manny Robles was, was going to be the coach for him going forward, but I thought for the first year he's been involved, he's been wrapped up, insulated in this amateur system where they are molly cuddled, they're, they're funded in Ireland as well, they're getting great money and different things. And I thought he's over there, he goes over there, he's on the, it's Torrance, he's just down from Los Angeles, and he's sparring with the likes of Oscar Valdez and Jesse Magdalena. He'll see where he is, you know, he'll, he'll be able to gauge where he's at because these guys are the top of his weight, and he's going over there. You know, he's 25 years old, so they're going to look to move him quickly. They're paying him a lot of money. So he's not going to have a, a five-year apprenticeship, but it's going to be like, you know, a year or two, and then he's going to be thrown in. So I thought it was important for him to be over there in America, to have, to go through that hardship, be in the gym every day with all those Mexican fighters that are starving hungry. You know, and he'll just toughen him up. And I, I think that was, I think he will say now that it was definitely the right thing for him to do. Sorry, Matt, who was you talking about there? Michael Conlon. Michael Conlon. Okay, yeah, I know what you mean. So, yeah. I, just when you were saying that then, I, I was getting like flashes of, of Chris Eubank Jr. Because he mm. went to Las Vegas from quite a young age. 
And when, when you see him in the ring and he's poised and he stood back and you think to yourself, it's all right posing and looking like a showman. But bottom line, if you can't fight when the guy's in front of you letting shots go and you're not used to it, it's, you're going to come unstuck and you're going to get found out at top level. But the one thing about Chris Eubank Jr., which I rate, even though he didn't have a massive amateur career at all, and he turned pro quite young, he's, he was in Vegas, wasn't he? And he was in them gyms and he was around mm. them, them for a couple of years. And that was a really good apprentice for him yeah. from a young age, being in that environment. And this is why I think Eubank Jr. will go, go a long way. I mean, he lost to Billy Joe Saunders and, and George Groves beat him, but Groves was probably too big for him at super middle. But, I mean, he fought the other night and he, he put on a great performance, I thought. Um, and I think without that, without that experience going over to Las Vegas and the toughness of them gyms, and, and that's embedded in him, and he'll take that for his pro career and it's set him in good stead. Chris Eubank knows the game, doesn't he? I mean, he's, he's been in the game, fought at top level. We all know about the Eubank-Ben fights and the, and the, and the, the tragic of Watson and, and, and you know, them, them stories. But... Chris Eubank Sr., as, as extrovert as he is and as, um, as strange as people think he is, he knows the game. And um, you can see him studying his son the other night when he was boxing and looking at him. And he knows, he's confident that Chris Eubank Jr. is actually quite mentally tough and strong. He came and sparred me, Chris Eubank Jr. And he, to be honest, he couldn't care less. I could tell he couldn't care less. He was in the ring, stretching his neck, warming his arms up, put his own gum shield in. Ding, ding, round one. Came out for about 24 shots, body and head. And I thought, who's this little fucker here now coming at me, like properly having a go? His dad was there filming it. But that's the difference, mate. It's, it's what you do when you're a young kid and how tough you are, how tough you have it early on. That'll be the difference between success and failure when you get there eventually. Yeah, and it's a funny one because obviously Eubank Jr. didn't have a, a rough, tough upbringing, but his old man know, know, knew the importance that he had to have that yeah. That grew that that toughening up. So he sent him over to America on his own, out in the gyms in Las Vegas. And listen, there's no court, there's none asked, no quarter given, and none asked in those gyms. The spars are yeah. like fights for 16 ounce gloves. You've seen it, Carl. Yeah. You know they really go for it. And you know, so and, and like I said, go back to that Michael Condon thing. That that's what I wanted for Michael. I knew he had the skills. I knew he could box technically and all that. But I thought you've got to have that that toughening up, yeah. that hardening where you're in that gym every single day, yeah. and no one gives a fuck. Yeah. People are looking to take the head off people. And you've not and you've not got kids, have you, Matt? But I wouldn't I wouldn't want my son. I just wouldn't want to send him. I, I feel sorry <laughs> for him. Like I've got to go away on Wednesday for a few days and I, I miss my kids so much. I'll be I'll be honest, I'll I'll put my heart on my sleeve now. When I'm sitting on the plane on the way anywhere, I, I cry. I sit on the plane and cry because I, I miss my kids and I think I'm not gonna see him for a few days. And I start to get all emotional and think to myself, I'll be back in a few days. Come on, snap out of it. You're a tough, you're a tough bloke. But I love my kids that much and I love spending time with them. I don't I wouldn't want Rocco to go into them them dark, lonely, horrible places, them painful places mentally and physically that you have to go to in professional boxing to succeed at the top. And I don't think it's the same with every sport. You have to be fit and strong and you have to be skillful to be a top football player. And like David Hayes got his son Cassius playing tennis at a good level. And you know. He's going to play tennis and he's going to he's going to have injuries. It's going to be tough at times. He's going to get his beatings and that. He's going to lose and win and go through all them emotions. And like my son Rocco plays golf. But let's be honest, mate, a, a bad day on the football pitch is 5-0. And you go away pissed off thinking I've just lost 5-0. But it's a team effort and whatever. A bad day in the boxing ring. And, you know, you go in hospital. You go in hospital. And, you know, worst case, we see it last week where an amateur died. 
I mean, you've got to put it into perspective and you've got to say to yourself, actually, no, not no, I'm not going to put my son through that. I've done the fighting. I'll let him chill out and have a nice life. And that's just that's just my opinion. And and we got we talked about Chris Eubank Jr. He actually wanted to do it for some reason. He wanted to do it and and fair play to him. He's doing well. I think he's got a bright future ahead of him. I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I can't speak for Chris Eubank Sr., but I'm guessing he's, he knows how brutal, how hard this game is. And he's probably thinking, OK, well, you want a box. You go over there to America for a couple of years and you prove to me how much you want it because it is brutal. It is a hard game. And if you do that and you stick it out and at the end of it or you still want to do it, well, yeah. then at least I know then. Yeah. You know, that was make or break for him, wasn't it, that, for Chris Eubank Jr.? He could have come back from that because, you know what, Dad, you're right. I don't fancy this. But he's gone out there, he's done it and come back. And he's, Eubank Sr. has thought to himself, you know what? Fair play to you, kid. Let's do it. Let's go for it. So that's that's exactly credit. yeah. That, that's that's exactly what happened. That's exactly why he did it. I remember watching a a documentary with the Eubanks at home with the Eubanks was it, or it might have been Louis Theroux a while ago. And I rewatched it not that long ago. And 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 Chris Junior is like thirteen or fourteen, probably. Uh, and he's saying to his dad, "Look, I just want to try it. Why won't you let me box? I just want to try it." And Eubanks Senior saying to him. It's not for you. You're basically saying you're not cut out for it for all the reasons that you've just you've just mentioned. But but he was insistent, uh, and the plan was all right. Well, if you want to do this, go over to Las Vegas by yourself. I'll hook you up with Mike McCallum and a couple of other people. But this is how this is going to have to be. And, and, and it was the same same with Nigel, uh, Ben, and, and Connor. Connor decided he wanted to box. Nigel said, "Okay, you're going to need to go back to England because there's people there I trust. But you're going to be living by yourself and doing this by yourself. I'll send you fifty quid a week." Let's see what happens. Uh, and Connor's very honest about how a couple of fights in, he thought, I don't know if this is for me. And after that fight against Cedric Payne, where he got knocked down a couple of times and he finished the fight with his eyes swollen shut virtually, he was thinking to himself very, very hard about whether this was really what he wanted. Uh, but he, but he's continued. It, it, it's a really interesting kind of, kind of subject. So that, let's, on a similar kind of note, um, one of the fights which has been kind of lost in the wash a bit on Saturday, I mentioned it earlier, is James Tennyson against Giovanni Straffon. And, and Straffon is a good example of what you were talking about. Details were scarce on him, but I had been told that, you know, he'd had a very tough life um, when he was young, um, homeless, um, saved from, saved really by the gym, as a lot of fighters are. And he came over on Saturday and we saw what he did against against James Tennyson. Now, what really interests me about that is that this is the third time now that this has happened. Mauricio Lara against Josh Warrington. We saw what happened there. Valenzuela against Robbie Davis Jr. We saw what happened there. And then again at the weekend. And looking at it from a kind of boxing business perspective, away wins are good on cards sometimes. Uh, people like to see it. And competitive fights at the minute, more, more than ever now, are certainly not just good. They, are, they, are, they have to happen. Nobody wants to see uh, a card... Um, full of one-sided uh, learning fights or, or, or mismatches. But at the same time, and I mentioned this in the post-fight YouTube we did, Matt, surely the next time that Eddie Hearn sidles up to a, a, a fighter or manager and says, OK, I've, I've got an opponent for you, uh, Mexican fighter, decent record, but really not that much on it. Details on him are fairly scarce, but... You know he's 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 a decent opponent for you. He shouldn't be a problem. They're, they're going to run a mile, aren't they? Because you know this is um, this is becoming a regular a regular occurrence. Yeah, we just they're going to be thinking. Well, I, 
I want to find out a bit more. He's 24 and 3, 16 knockouts. Hasn't really boxed outside of Mexico. How do I know how good he is? How do I know how good these opponents are? I don't know who they are. So I can't really gauge anything from him. I can't get any footage on him. I need a bit of a, a clip on YouTube. Like, it's an unknown entity, isn't it? And all, all of a sudden, you, you've seen a few upsets happening. And also, I don't think that's just because these Mexicans were way better than we thought. I think it's because the fighters didn't get up for it because they thought, ah, oh, it's just a guy coming over here. Yeah, he's lost a few. He's fought no one. And, you know, someone like Josh Warrington, for example, who's used to boxing in front of thousands of people. You know, Carl Frampton, Kid Galahad, Salby, back-to-back fights with these guys. And all of a sudden, he's boxing this Mexican who is supposed to be a routine win. And all of a sudden, he's getting hit with shots that are hurting him that he wasn't expecting. And, you know, what was meant to be a routine, stay busy fight ends up being an absolute disaster. So I think fighters will be, I think any of those top fighters that are meant to have a stay busy fight against an unknown Mexican (laughs) will be doing their due diligence a lot more. What did you make of it watching it on on, on Saturday, Carl? Because we were commentating on it and, and a minute in, you're looking at it, we were, and thinking... Christ, like this is already a really, really hard fight because Straffel came straight to the middle of the ring and started throwing big, heavy shots. And Tennyson stood there and thought, "Okay, fine, let's 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 do it this way then." And and that's great to watch. But yeah. what was going through your mind when you he when just tends to do that, that? doesn't he, Tennyson? He just kind of know one way. He'll stand and have a fight with people. He, he you don't often see him in box unless he's, he's he's totally in control. But yes, Straffel came out and took the center of the ring. And Tennyson stood with him. What was I thinking? I was thinking, wow, this is great. What a fight. I mean, I love boxing. And I love... I, I, when the when the guys are in front of each other, hooking away and shots are landing, they're blocking shots, but they're exchanging blows and it's even. It's like 50-50. No one's really got that strength to push the other one back. No one looks any faster or any stronger. Although Straffon did look a little bit stronger than Tennyson when he was landing. Then punches sounded a bit more thudding and seemed to have a bit more of an impact. But Tennyson was in the fight. He was doing okay. I was thinking to myself, bloody hell, what is happening? If you tuned into that fight in the 30 seconds into it, if you just turned the telly on, you'd think you was in round seven or eight. You wouldn't think you was in round one. Um, I don't want to reference Hagler Hearns, but they went at it from round one straight away. And if that would have gone three rounds of that fight like that, and then someone would have got knocked out, that was one of them fights that was up there with Hagler Hearns. Obviously not the kind of profile but whoever's not seen that fight, I, I urge you to go and flick on YouTube and try and find it. The, the, the one didn't even last a round, did it? It was the first round, and Tennyson and Strathon stood in the middle of the ring. There was moving a little bit, but there was, there was, there was navigating around the centre of the ring, just battering each other. with. And it looked like good. It wasn't swinging handbags. There was good shots, good, accurate shots. You know, Strathon, the Mexican, tough Mexican, knew what he was doing. Tennyson can fight as well, give him his credit. But they were just landing big, heavy blows on each other, exchanging leather. And unfortunately for Tennyson, he was on the end of some heavy digs and he got put out. And the fight needed stopping and it got stopped. And, you know, he will look at that and think, what just happened there? How's, how does this work? And you go back to matchmaking and who's managing him and who's looking. I know Rob McCracken was very, very selective of my opponents. I fought everyone when I was ready. You know, I fought all the best of the best in my division. I couldn't have fought anyone anyone else, really. I fought a lot of them. Fought, you know, well, you know my resume. I, there was no one I avoided or could have avoided. Someone avoided me. JC avoided me from Wales. But um, <laughs> early on, Rob was 
Rob was selective. You know, there's a couple of fights where he went, no, he's not fighting him. He's not ready for him yet. And no, I don't like that one. And I was thinking, I could hear him with McKennessy in the, in the office. And he said, no, forget that. We're not, we're not having that. I think Adonis Stevenson came up early on in my career and he was like, no, he's a mad puncher. He is. And it's a bit risky. We don't need to be chunk, jumping in with Adonis Stevenson. It's, it's not a big reward fight, but it's a massive risk fight. McCracken knows the game, you see. So although he knows how tough I am and my amateur pedigree and he'd, he'd schooled me as a pro and chucked me in there with Eastman and some of these top pros, he still knew that you can't chuck somebody in who's still learning, who's still only a year or two years into the career or even three years, but not really had the tests. You can't chuck him in with someone who's experienced and who's a big puncher. And, and Strafon, the Mexican, was very much an unknown quantity, like Matthew Macklin said there. But you, they don't, you don't really know how good they are. There's, there's very little footage to find on them. There's no real names on their opponent. But he could be the next big thing. I mean, I, I said on the night he could maybe fight the winner of Lenares, Devin Haney. And I, I, I expect Lenares to lose that one against Devin Haney. But if he fights, I know he's IBO champion now, the Mexican, but IBO, let's be honest, it's, it's, an, international, it's an international belt. You don't consider yeah. yourself, or you shouldn't consider yourself a world champion. And the, the IBO officials probably won't like me saying that. But the IBO is not really recognised um, as a world yeah. title, um, although it does have that, it does have that title. But Strafon now is put himself right in the mix and um, maybe fight someone like Lenares if he gets beat and then he'll be tapping on the door for one of the big boys. But it's a monster division, as you know, Lomachenko, um, Tofima Lopez, um, Devin Haney. There's a, few, there's a few fighters in that division, which I still think that Strafon would give a good fight. But it was round one. You still don't know that much about Strafon because it was one round. Can he do that through round five and six? And can he do that in rounds 9, 10, 11 and 12 has he got that in him you won't know but unfortunately for Tennyson he, he opted to to take the post like the phone box the telephone box style stay in front of him and have an ab absolute tear up good old fashioned passionate ass whooping in round one to our viewing pleasure and um, he found out how tough it can be and yeah he's, I don't know is it Eddie Hearn is it his trainer has he got a manager someone needs to be saying hang on a minute the fuck did you do there? What did you do that for? Chucking me in with this monster from Mexico, because that was a tough way to learn. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. They, they, Mark Donald's his manager, and they, they they've done a great job with him. This is a this is a a, a bump in the road, and I, I raised it not to dig anybody out, but just because it's happened a few times now, and it's. Uh, I just wonder what Eddie was thinking, Matt, when it <laughs> when it when it when it happened again, if you like, on Saturday, because. He is promoting these fighters, and although he does want competitive fights, he does want good fights, um, and they're looking at this whole kind of global thing as well. It, it, it certainly wasn't the plan for Josh Warrington, Robbie Davis Jr. and Tennyson all to get beaten. No, and it's a great point you make, Andy, because, it, look, it, it, it is different times now with, with COVID. There's no crowds. Look, in, in the days it, with, with the crowds being there, not so long ago, if, if you sold loads of tickets, chances are they, they're, they're going to want you to keep winning. Do you know what I mean? Because you're selling loads of tickets, you're bringing revenue into the show and they hope you're going to improve and get better. But right now, you've got to bring value to the show from a TV angle. So in other words, you've got to be in a competitive fight. Maybe not necessarily 50-50, but it's got to be a competitive fight. You're not getting a duck egg just because you sold 500 tickets. That's not happening. So, you know, if you're getting a guy and his record don't stack up or he's, you know, he's lost a few, You've really got to look, your manager, your trainers, really got to look at that 
see who they were, what weight it was, how long ago it was it. Because, you know, someone might have lost a fight earlier on in their career when they were down in the weight and their weight drains. And actually, you speak to somebody who knows the kid and knows the history. He goes, yeah, he was killing himself to make that weight, but he's moved up a couple of weights now and he's changed trainers. Actually, now he's a really good fighter. So those three losses, which you're thinking, oh, he's not that good on, there were, there were other factors to take into account. So as Carl talking there about Robert as well, Robert knows the game. He's been in it. Do you know what I mean? He knows it. So he knows that. Look, Carl Frotch fought everyone. Everyone knows that about him. But there's people on the way up as you're learning and improving and you're getting that season and experience that you're not ready for. Guys that you will be in a year down the line, but you're not quite ready for them now. And that's that's what the manager and the trainer really have to be on the ball with. And I don't think it's a case with that that was the case with Tennyson because Tennyson's probably in his peak, he's probably as good as he's going to be. But I think that they probably just didn't give the due respect to the, the the Mexican kid because he'd had a few losses. And he's thinking, well, I'm supposed to win this fight. Do you know what I mean? He's the house fighter. I don't think they probably gave it the, the due diligence they should have. And But then, you know, I've got to say, I'm not recommentating it. And the kids stood with Tennyson. And most people that stand with Tennyson get knocked out. He's a proper puncher. You know, he's a genuine KO merchant, isn't he? And this, this Mexican kid just started, stood his ground straight away, started banging with him. And I'm thinking, this ain't going to last long. But I, I've got to be honest, I thought it weren't going to last long in favour of Tennyson because, you know, every, every fight he has, he, he gets them out of there more or less. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it was just, it's just, it's just a, you know, boxing's in a really interesting place at the minute. And uh, Josh Warrington was there on Saturday too. And I don't know if he was in his seat for that fight, but I remember thinking to myself, if he was, what must he have? What must he have been thinking? Um, so the just, argument, Andy, sorry to stop you, but there's the argument that the, the lads now need fast-tracking a little bit and they have to take these gambles because they don't know when the next opportunity is going to come. I know we're, we're kind of coming out the other end. There's a bit of light at the end of the tunnel now with this um, with this pandemic. But um, I just think these kids are taking the chances because they're forced to, you know? And like me, if you go to my career, talk about myself again, but you've got me on, so I might as well. I was, I was 30... I boxed for the world title in 2008. Now, I turned professional in 2002, six years as a pro. I was 31 years old. I was either 30 or 31, depending on what uh, December, wasn't it? December 2008. So I must have been 31 years old when I fought for a world title. And I had a big amateur career. I had a few years out, but I won a few bits as a schoolboy, turned senior, won the ABAs twice, light middleweight and middleweight, boxed for England, won a bronze medal in the world after winning various multinations tournaments medals, gold, silvers and bronzes. So getting bags of experience... Then I turned professional. I had tough sparring early on, and I still had six years as a professional sparring hard, being matched up correctly before I fought Jean Pascal for the world title. Some of these kids now, they're having to take the gamble and, and take the chance and jump in there with people that they're not ready for. And I think that's the problem as well. It doesn't matter how good you are, how good you think you are, how good your trainer thinks you are. Um, you need to have somebody who sits back and looks at it and says, hang on a minute, is this match correct? Let's have, a, let's have an extra special look at this match. Before we sign it, before we agree, let's just have a proper look at it. Don't just think our kid will beat him and he's nobody, this kid from Mexico, and we'll do him. Uh, I mean, there was a good matchmaker, the late Dean Powell, and he was good at matchmaking fighters. He used to know the fighters inside out. Can you remember him, Matt? Obviously, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. He, was, he was the go-to guy for matching. And he didn't make many mistakes, that guy. 
And there's not many people like him around now. There's people that just want to push the kid in and say, yeah, we'll find out now. We'll find out how good he is. And it's easy for Eddie Hearn or a manager or a trainer that don't really care. And I'm not singling anybody out, but it's easy for them to say, well, we'll find out. We'll find out how good he is. And they're finding out, aren't they? They're finding out with some of these kids, you know, Josh Kelly and Tennyson. And, you know, it's happening. Um, And it's, I don't know, it's... Is it damaging careers or will they come back stronger from that? I think a bad beating is not good for you early on in your career. I think whichever way you look at it, it's, it's not a good way to learn on the job at that level. But um, we'll see. We'll see where Tennyson comes. It was over in round one. He can come back from it. Um, but no, I think the kids do need a bit of guidance and a bit more TLC, even in a brutal sport like boxing. You still need to be matched up correctly. And it might it might need looking at, but... We're not going to start a forum or a new reform on it, but I just think that being looked after when you're building your career as a professional is is of paramount importance. The matchmaking is so important. When you're world champion, you've been there and you've done it and you've won your world title or you've been in with a world champion and proven yourself like you did. You, you'd lost at world level, Matt, but you've proven you belong there. On a couple of occasions, you, it was, you was fine to jump in with Golovkin. All right, he caught you with a great body shot, but... There was no outclassing going off where, where you was concerned in your career. And there was no whoopings where you think, oh, fucking Ali, shouldn't have took that one. And because you was ready for it. You know what I mean? And um, I think we're seeing guys now jumping in, jumping in with or being chucked in with people that they're not quite ready for. Yeah, I think what you see in, in boxing as well, the promoters, the promoters obviously got fighters that they want to develop into stars and they hope they win and they bring them through. But ultimately, they're trying to put on a good event. They're trying to put on a good show for the TV, for the fans watching, because they're the promoter. It's the manager and the trainer's job to kind of yeah. go through with a fine tooth kind of thing. Nah, I, I know you want this fight. I know the TV want this fight. Yeah. But I don't want that fight yet yeah. for my kid because he's not ready for it. He's not seasoned enough. And it's on pay-per-view as well a lot now. You know, when you're selling a fight on pay-per-view, people want to buy it. If they're going to buy the package going to buy into pay-per-view they want to be entertained they don't want 50, they don't want like 80 20 fights they want 50 50 fights you know and that was a great show the other night credit to eddie hearn and credit to the show i mean the chisora parker fight for me was was a bit of a letdown it was it was intriguing i was like thinking what's going to happen because when parker put his shots together he looked like he could sustain that and put on a real show but he'd, he'd throw four or five shots look look good and then sit back and then took up on the ropes and suck up a load of body shots so to me, you know, the, the 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 star show there, the star fight was Katie Taylor, Natasha Jonas, and that one round, that one round Tennyson and um, Shrafon. You know, it was a couple of decent fights. A light heavy fight with Bivol as well was a, was a great fight. I quite enjoyed that. It was quite an absorbing fight. But um, was we going to actually talk about um, Chisora, Delboy, and Parker? Yeah, we can do. We can yeah, do. Um, quick mention, isn't it? Yeah, I'm just I'm just kind of like, how are you for time? Yeah, it's all right. It's 20 past 11. Don't worry. Um, I think they've got some grub in there, to be honest, that needs eating. And I just heard the garage and the door go, but I'm quite okay. Sure, mate. Kids okay, well, we, we can have a quick chat about Chisora Park. If you don't then. need it, if you don't need it, I think we've got enough and we probably don't need to go on that because, I mean, obviously you're going to edit all this out, aren't you? But it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a anti-climax, wasn't it? It looked like Parker wasn't really interested and Chisora was just doing his usual plod forward and swing away. Who did you think won that one? Well, we never do any editing on um, on Macklin's take. Oh, yeah. um, well, it, could have got, uh, it could have gone either way. Keep it all well, in. It's, it's all truth. It, it could have gone either way. I thought I, I I gave it to Parker doing the unofficial card, and the reason I thought he won was because I thought Chisora did a lot of good work in the first half. He moved his head well too, so he avoided the punches coming back. He boxed pretty effectively 
Southpaw at times. Uh, and as you said, he kept coming forward the whole fight. He, he, he invested in the body, did some good body work and did land some good headshots as well. And he brought everything that he could bring. But from halfway on, um, Parker did, from where I was standing, he did the more effective punching. Not quite as much of it as you felt he could be capable of, as you as you pointed out. But there were two or three rounds there where I had Chisora winning after two minutes of the round in my head, maybe two minutes 20. And then towards the end, I thought Parker just took them away from him because he put his foot on the gas a bit and put together some really good, clean, effective shots. And, you could totally and- see the argument, though, that Chisora won the fight from his point of view because he was constantly walking forward, constantly throwing punches, mainly body shots, but they're scoring shots, pushing him back, landing at overhand rights and ones down the side of the back of the head. Head. He had the knockdown in round one as well. So if you're Chisora and you're listening to David Hay and Tony Bellew shouting, that's good work, good work, clapping after every round. You've got the knockdown in round one, so you know you're ahead. And you've not got much coming back. You're not getting hit much. From Chisora's point of view, when I've rewatched the fight back, I thought to myself, did Chisora win that? If you, if you count punches landed, on the night, I thought Parker won. Because when he put his shots together behind that jab, he looked like the classier operator. But just being classy and looking pretty for 30 seconds of a round doesn't win the round, does it, Matt? Do you not think it was a bit like it was a bit like the Hagler Leonard fight, as in Hagler was winning the rounds, doing the work, landing the shots, and then Leonard was going just shoe shining, just stealing the rounds with some. Did you just bursts. did you just compare Chisora Parker to Hagler Leonard? I'm saying that time. I'm <laughs> Next time I see you, I'm going to strangle you to death slowly. No, you, know, you know what I mean. I'm saying. I know what you mean. I know what you're saying. It's like it, it, Parker was sneaking some of the rounds with a few bursts, wasn't he? Like <laughs> he Leonard was, yeah. Where, where, where you know Chisora was pressing the fight, but you can see Chisora's argument, can't you? You can kind of yeah, feel definitely. for him and say, yeah, what, What's the crack here? David A did come up to me after and say, who, who won that? Who won that? And I thought, Well, if you knew who won it, why are you asking me? You should be sure, yeah. you know. And it was one of them where you couldn't really separate them. But Parker, whoever, like, lo- whoever loses is going to feel hard, but why in a fight yeah. like that? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree. And uh, the way I kind of explained my card at the end was I had three real close rounds that I had question marks against. And I gave them all to Parker because I felt that he just overtook Chisora at the end with, with some good work towards the end of the round. That what, what I could do when I've got close rounds is I think, oh, I gave the first one I wasn't sure about to Chisora, then I have another one, better give that to Parker and hedge it that way. But I don't do that and I don't give drawn rounds. Um, I make my own mind up. And that was that was how I ended up with with what I had. But but absolutely, with Chisora, he put an, a huge effort in and he did have plenty of success. So I wouldn't have complained, particularly if he'd, if he'd got it. And he's going to keep going. He should have a couple of 10-10 rounds in there, Andy. Well, it's I have thought about that. a 10 point system for a reason. If I you, have thought about that. In a, well, it close the gap a bit and maybe, you know, I don't know. It, no, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in that. It's, that is uh, the correct way to score, though, right? If you can't separate a winner on the round, you score, you score even. Like, if round one, two top fighters come out um, and just jabbing and just just having the feeling out process and touching gloves and not doing much, like Floyd Mayweather against, I don't know, well, it wasn't Cotto, but early on, you know, in some of his world title fights, Zab Judah, for example, they stand off and they're just touching gloves and throwing feints and landing the odd jab to the body. Who would you score that if you're saying you just give it a 10-9 because you like the look of his boots or you like his shiny shorts? Well, I, th- I think I could find something. I think I could always find something. Yeah. That even if it's just a jab to the body, you think, yeah, right, he landed even, that. Even if it's one punch. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough, um, I get that. Um, that. That's the way I look at it. That's the way well, I look at it. What if they don't hit each other? What if nothing lands, then what? 
Well, then what, what what I'm looking for then is who who looks like they're dictating terms more, even though they're oh, not actually on. doing anything. Can't give it for dictating. Throwing a few yes. fakes. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Because that it means looks like you're... he wants it more. He's won that round. Yeah, yes, yes, you can. If nobody lands anything, then you go to secondary and, and, and tertiary criteria, and they for me are, are things like ring generalship and making things and it, happen. Yeah, okay, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah you yeah, can always if, find a winner. Okay. Yeah, I think I could always find a winner. People disagree with me on this, and that's and that's fine. No, um, mate, people disagree more of my ten ten rounds. Let me tell you, I get <laughs> obliterated for ten ten. <laughs> that's just because I can't score ten ten. Let the judges work it out. I'm not here to be a judge. But no, I do score 10-10 in close rounds, but I can usually find a winner of a round, and you're right. But I know you stick with that with the 10-9, which is fair enough. And you got the right winner the other night, Andy, so you obviously know a little bit about the game. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I like doing the card. It's um, I get, you know, people uh, challenge you on cards all, all the time, and that's that's fine because, you know, I, I know what I'm looking for. I make my mind up. I can always explain it. Uh, and then people could say whatever they like about it. Mate, it's a it. tough That's... gig sparring, it really is. And commentating as well. I mean, you you guys, um, Matthew and Andy and, and Adam Smith, come under fire quite a lot for for the way you speak. But you, you see what you see and you've got the experience as, a, as an ex-fighter. And if you think somebody's winning because they're being more forceful or they're landing more accurate shots or more telling shots, then you've got to be honest. Just I want to ask you a question actually quickly. Tasha Jonas and Katie Taylor. Katie Taylor finished strong in that fight in terms of work output and work rate. And I, I felt like on the night that, that Tasha Jonas deserved the win. So that's, that's another difficult one. But where do you stand when, when Tasha Jonas has got a real nice tight guard and Katie Taylor's just going hell for leather in the end? She's just working. Look how exhausted and shattered she looked in the interview after Katie Taylor. She looked worn out. And, and Tasha Jonas looked quite fresh and she was smiling and she was giving a good interview. And Taylor was still getting her breath. So she absolutely worked her heart out in the last round. And fair play to her, the last two rounds throwing loads of punches and kind of dazzling the, the audience. Well, there was no audience, but the judges that are scoring. But do you score them shots, them hooks and left-right, left-right combinations, seven, eight, nine-punch combinations, when Tasha Jonas is tucking up, blocking shots on her gloves and arms, and then she'll throw one counter-punch? For me, if nothing gets through, you don't score it. And I just thought that Tasha Jonas um, was quite unfortunate because I thought she landed some classy shots and she had Taylor Hurt. But it was it was almost like a little bit of a one sided win, wasn't it? No, that's I, I I agree I agree with that completely, and that you've got to look for what gets through. Hitting gloves no. um, is not the same as, as scoring punches. Was there a lot of look. glove hitting in that fight? I mean, I, when we watch it from the studio, it's different to when people watch it on television. But to me, a lot of them shots did not get through from Katie Taylor. I would agree with that, but quite a lot of them, quite a lot of them did. I remember giving Jonas yeah. a round early in the fight. I remember giving Jonas the third round because I thought that in that round, although Taylor was on the front foot and threw a lot more, not that much got through. And Jonas threw four or five good quality, clean counter punches, counter punches, a couple of jabs, and I thought that for me is enough to is enough yeah. to win that round. That's the difficult calculation that you need to make. Yeah. And Taylor just did enough not by a what lot what did your scorecard look like Andy I can't remember I, I had 6-4 Taylor because I gave her the ninth and the 10th but 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 just yeah, just, just because again so that extra just, work output sealed it yeah, for her then that's what it was that's what it was for me but that wait, Matt that, that chimes yeah, in with I'm well, um, the same Andy because the, you got to think you know she was throwing 7 and 8 punches Kate Taylor no 7 and 8 weren't getting through but 2 or 3 were you know and that was so even though she was kind of gambling on saturating yeah. her she was getting through, and and, and it did th- that one of the round, those last two. Yeah, that's it. That's was it. Was Jonas guilty of being a little bit lazy late on, or was she just tired? Because she had a round off, didn't she? She had like round eight off, I think. 
And then round nine, she was okay. And 10, she stayed in there with her and kind of matched her. I mean, there'd have been a couple of even rounds in there for me, to be honest, I think my scorecard. I, I think she just, I think in the last <clears throat> two rounds and maybe in the last round particularly, she was just, she was bombarded so much. And she, she still managed to land some decent counters, but she was bombarded so much that that she just didn't really have any yeah. any room or, or time or yeah. space to, to breathe. And Taylor really did put it on her. And Matt was yeah. talking about sevens and eights there. Yeah. In that final yeah. round, she was throwing nine, yeah, 10, true, 11, true. 12 punches. And, and and the final few ones were, were getting Yeah, I'm not through. saying it was a wrong decision. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's, it's, it's debatable. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. I, 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 had a, I had a fight at the World Youth Championships um, between a Mongolian fighter and a Russian fighter. And the Mongolian fighter, really good shape, really good technical fighter, threw lots of really nice combinations. But I could see watching it at ringside that he was just hitting gloves. He was just hitting gloves, like feet in, yeah. two, three, feet out, you know, that kind of Kazakh, Mongolian, Uzbek style where they, they're great at getting in and out with the feet. And the Russian kid was just taking loads on the gloves. But every now and again, he kind of step in and land the odd single shot. Didn't look great. You know, he was a bit kind of clumsy looking clumsy looking fellow when he threw his through his right hand and at the end of the fight the judges gave it to him and I said I thought that was right um at the end of the session everybody who was like 10 yards further away at ringside was saying what did you think of that fight we thought it was outrageous the Mongolian fighter was way better and I just said we just hit a lot of gloves he just hit a lot yeah. of gloves you've got to you've got to look for what for what gets through but it's exactly. you know scoring's like uh it's it's the debate that's just just rages and will do will oh, do Saunders Canelo let's let's we got to yes. do Saunders Hello, come on. Because Carl's the co- going over. You know, we're all lucky. The beat is fighting boxing right now. That's that it, the coach. Let's do Saunders Canelo then quick then go, because I think my um, daughter's little pamper party is about to start. Yeah, it's, it's, Carl's, it's Carl's daughter's eighth birthday. So um, he's, yeah, he's, she's eight. Uh, yeah, she's eight. She had an ears pursed. He thought, the other day he thought she was 10 an hour ago. I know I did. I, know I said that to her. <laughs> she was 10. It was 10 o'clock. That's what it was. But no, um, yeah, they, they're, all, they're all stacking up in the kitchen now. I can hear them in the background and um, it's fine. I don't really get involved in them pamper parties. I, I might ask the lady who's turned up to see if she can do my feet, but I don't think she will. <laughs> she wants to put makeup and do nails. She might give the Cobra a pedicure if I'm lucky. So you're heading over stateside later in the week. Yes, and yeah, when this is, they flying out to the States? This is a kind of much anticipated fight because it looked like <clears throat> this was going to happen a little while ago. Um, and then it looked like it, it had gone away, uh, and now it's back um, for for Saunders. Canelo's the, the the biggest name in the sport, and he seems to be getting better and better and better. And and he's an example of someone who, you know, he turned pro at fifteen, so that that amateur schooling he, he he didn't have that, but that's how they do it in Mexico. And he was brought along carefully and very very well, and he's had over fifty fights, even though he's not he's not thirty yet. So you would say that he was a project to a career that's been very well, very well managed i mean what what kind of a chance do you give do you give saunders against against someone like him who's that to is that to the cobra or is that to, to the, the cobra to the cobra well i think that without being too cutthroat and straight to the point i think canelo wins the fight now that I, I can't make a case for canelo losing to not just to billy joe saunders but to anyone within them weight divisions around you know around the um Super welterweight. I know he's up from there now, but middleweight, super middle, light heavy. I'd, I'd make a case for someone giving him a fight. And that's why I think he dropped down after beating a faded Kovalev. But around the super middleweight, middleweight area, I think he's just a, a, a dangerous force. And he's beat everybody to the point in front of him. He had a, he had a great fight with Mayweather twice. But did he fight Mayweather twice? 
once. He fought Triple G twice. So it's like he's been in with the best of the best and he's fell short once. You know, the fights with Triple G were close as well. They could have maybe he could have maybe lost one of them, but he didn't. He got the decision. Um, so the only loss on his record is Mayweather. But Billy Joe Saunders, you know, he's a great fighter. He's got fast hands. He's, he, he knows the box. He's skillful. He's, he doesn't get enough credit for the skill. He, or maybe he does. He's good on his feet as well. He's, he's got good ring craftsmanship. But I just don't think he's good enough for Canelo. I don't think he's big enough or strong enough. And if I look at Billy Joe Saunders in the last six rounds against against Chris Eubank Jr., I thought he got put he got it put on him and he was struggling in them last six rounds. I know he won the fight against Chris Eubank Jr., um, but there's levels to this game and it's nothing against Billy Joe. You know, he's a world champion in his own right. He's a top fighter. But Canelo, to me, he's just, he's just out there. He stands out from the rest of them. He's, he's going to be really, really difficult to beat. And like you said, Andy, he's getting better and better. I just can't see Billy Joe derailing him. If he does, I think it will have to be a standoff boxing lesson or boxing um, tactics, jabbing, and then five, six punches and just try not to get hit back because he's going to get hit. Try not to get hit back and just... Can you see Billy Joe Saunders outboxing and outworking Canelo? It's hard to hit Canelo with a jab. His defence is brilliant with his gloves. His counter-punching is really, really good. It's exceptional. And he bangs hard. He punches hard. And he's a tough motherfucker as well. He can take a shot. You can't hurt him. I, I can't see Billy Joe. And like I said, I like Billy. I think he's sound. And he knows. He'll see this. But I'm always honest. I think he's getting beat. I really do. But I'm not saying that's going to be mismatched or one-sided. I think he gives him a fight. And it's going to be entertaining and interesting. I hope Billy Joe doesn't, doesn't get done. I hope he doesn't get, doesn't get ironed out. You know, we've seen Amir Khan get absolutely flattened. He looked like he'd been shot by a sniper in the audience. Bang! Down he went. Gone. Um, Amir Khan was just flat on his back, out cold. Um, that I don't think that's going to happen to Billy Joe. But, you know, a distance fight, I can still see Canelo winning. Although, <clears throat> I'm hoping Billy has the night of his life, puts it on him, gives us a show, entertains us, and somehow comes away with a verdict. I really do, because um, how great would that be? Be fantastic, actually. What do you think, Matt? I mean, I think I think Billy Joe on his night is a is a problem for anyone, and I think Canelo struggles with that style, the southpaw, the slick movement. You know, Austin Trout, Lara, yeah, he got the decision against Lara, and he beat Trout, but there were, you know, it was a close fight considering the level of Canelo really. So you can see that's, and even with Danny Jacobs. Switch southpaw against Canelo after putting on a complete masterclass for six rounds. It, it, it broke his rhythm. It slowed it down, and he was he could he was starting to catch Canelo. I just he, he definitely struggles with the style of Billy Joe, and Billy Joe is top of the class at that style. You know he's brilliant at it. So those things you know give me hope that he could do it. But it's Canelo, isn't it? And Canelo's never looked better than he does right now. You know, he's, he looks like he's in the peak of his career. It's like, I remember when even Gary Lineker could talk about Diego Maradona when he died, he said he was unplayable. It's almost like Canelo's at that point. Gary Lineker? Like, yeah, when he talked about Do you ever listen Diego to that Maradona, Wanker? Ever? Not really, but just when he was talking about Diego <laughs> Maradona like when they were all giving the tributes. Fair and he enough. said, you know, he was unplayable. Because he was, wasn't he? Diego Maradona, 1986. Yeah, unplayable. True. You know, Canelo, you see him that last, you see him his last fight against Callum Smith, who's a good fighter. Or right, his last one, the one before. And he was like, fucking hell. He just, it, it, it was easy for him, wasn't it? I never expected that. Yeah. 
Can Billy Joe? I don't know. He's got I know what you mean about it. Daniel Jacobs with the southpaw and Canelo, but Canelo still kind of, he was only like thinking about it when he for 20 seconds of the round. Then he, yeah. he got, I mean, Jacobs found it really difficult to land a bloody jab in that fight. And he was throwing five, six, seven punch combinations in range. Canelo was slip, slip, block, roll, counter punch. It was so impressive. And I thought Canelo was kind of going on a little bit of a, towards the end of his career on a slide after the Triple G's fight. But then he, he comes back and puts performances in and you think, bloody hell, this guy is God. It's like Andy said, he seems to be getting better and better. So, unfortunately for Billy Joe, I think he's up against it. But who, who would you say? Who would you say wins this and how, Matt? What would you say? No, I think I think Canelo on points, but... I, you but think I think, it's I think, a points job? I, he's tough, isn't he, yeah. Billy Joe? I can't see him he, getting done, can you? Nah, he's tough and he's he, he, he's good. He's, he's hard to hit. He's hard to pin down. He's a great mover. He's slick, you know what I mean? I, I think... I don't know if he'll win the five. I think he'll be. I don't think he'll he'll beat Canelo. But I think he'll definitely be competitive. Hundred percent. Yeah, I think he'll be competitive. I think he'll give him problems. Yeah, I hope so. No, I've got a ten-hour flight to go and see it. <laughs> <laughs> Better be competitive, or I'll be having a word with him after. So, <laughs> before we let you go, someone you might see out there. I, I'm guessing you definitely will see out there because he's been out there um, with Billy Joe the last. Um, few days at least might be a couple of weeks now is is Tyson Fury well Tyson's been in Vegas actually Tyson's been in Vegas but you'd imagine that he'll find his way to the to the fight which is down in down in Texas Fury his behavior over the last week or so has been entertaining to say the least he he seems to be in this place in his life and in his career that he's so secure in what he's achieved in boxing already and financially secure in what he's made money-wise, that more than ever now, he's totally comfortable saying whatever he feels like he wants to say to whoever he feels like he wants to to say it to. I mean, do you do, 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 do you know him? Do you know Tyson particularly? Carl, me, yeah. He, yeah. yeah. Well, when, I, when, I, um, when I first turned professional, it was with Mick Hennessy, and Mick Hennessy introduced me to Tyson Fury, and for my first world for title fight, I was training in um, in County Mayo, Castle Bar in Ireland. And I was on camp with Tyson Fury. He, he made his professional debut on the undercard of my world title fight in Nottingham. So I know Tyson Fury really well. I spent a lot of time with him and his team and his, his dad. Um, and I think he's a great character. He, he was sparring at Perez. I think it was Perez. And I was sparring um, Louis, Louis um, Garcia. And it was, we were just both like having torrid spars every day I mean Tyson was doing better than me against um, Garcia I was struggling against Garcia but Tyson was doing really well against Perez um, but we, we we spent a lot of time um, Daniel um, what's his name Billy Corcoran oh no it wasn't Billy Corcoran it was um, John O'Donnell he was there training and, and I was with McCracken obviously and we was sitting in the restaurants most nights chatting going through stories and telling me about his, his dad was telling me stories about how he's ironed a few people out and how, how rough it was because they had quite a rough upbringing them lot as you can imagine um and i've seen i've seen tyson over the years and i keep in touch with him i spoke to him the other day we're doing a wbc wbc are doing an opus book so i did a i did a zoom call with with some real legends i mean i was on i don't want to start name dropping now but i was on the call with with um, thomas hearns Oscar De La Hoya, Mike Tyson, Tyson Fury was on there, um, Roberto Duran. It was an amazing Zoom call, and it's getting edited down and pieced together. And Tyson Fury was on there, and we have to give our input as to who belongs in the top 12 fights of all time. We've got the top 100 best fights ever, and then we have to pick a top 12. 
And Tyson Fury's input was this and this alone. I want to denominate my fight with Deontay Wilder. I want to take it out, both of them, because it was a one-sided beatdown. It doesn't belong, it doesn't deserve to belong in the top 12. I thought, where are they nominating? I put myself in the top 12 for the Taylor fight. Um, but he just denominated himself. And I went, hang on a minute, Tyson. You struggled in that first fight because you're coming off the back of rehab, really. And you not really fought anyone. You fought two pub doormen in warm-up fights. Right. Then you jumped in with Wilder. No one thought you was going to, Eddie Hearn included. And you gave him a really good fight. But you got flattened in round 12. The referee could have waved it off. You somehow managed to climb off the canvas, finish strong and get the draw. Then you had the rematch when you got yourself in shape and got your mind on it and, and, and you know, you had that first fight under your belt. And then you give them a one-sided beatdown. So I think the first fight and the second fight should be put in as one fight because the two fights tell the whole story. And I think you're, you're playing yourself down by denominating yourself. So we had a chat about But that just sums Tyson Fury up. That's just how he is. His only input was to denominate himself. I think he's just a fantastic character. He's full of confidence. But a massive part of his game is the mind games. And, you know, he's bowling around Vegas with his Versace shirts on, dancing on tables with his underpants. And he's got his fat belly and his love handles jiggling around on some of the scenes I've seen. And he does not, he couldn't care less. He's got a six-pack under there somewhere. He's, he's fit and he's strong. But he could not care less, to say the least. To be, I'm being polite there. He does not give a potato. He does what he wants when he wants, says what he wants to who he wants. And fair play to him. He's exercising his right to free speech and he gets in the ring and he puts on the performance and backs up his boasts. I was at ringside when he when he he just totally outclassed, and I say outclassed in the best, you know, against Klitschko because Klitschko didn't hit him with a shot. He just got in there and did what he said he was going to do, outboxed him and manoeuvred him around. It's not one of them fights you'd re-watch and go, wow, what a great fight. But what he actually did and achieved there um, was, was nothing short of amazing. And then he went on a three-year bender, didn't he? And then he came back and look where he is now. You've got to give him his credit, mate. He's he's going to be hard to beat, not just because he's physically quick, fast, strong, tall, big, heavy, and can manhandle people, but because he can fight as well. And his mindset is so powerful. And he totally writes off his opponents mentally. He, wrote, he writes off their frame of mind before he gets in with them. I would absolutely hate to fight someone like Tyson Fury. I'd hate it. I'd have to put earplugs in. On the whole build-up, yeah, uh, Matt. Just a quick call from, from from you on this. He, as I said at the start, um, when I kind of introduced um, this this topic, that he's he, he is in this space now, Fury, where he just seems just completely, almost kind of untouchable in a way. It, it, do you see what I mean? It's like yeah, most, does, most, most people have this some kind of desire to not toe any party line, but particularly when negotiations are going on for a massive fight, like the one we hope we'll see between him and, and, and Anthony Joshua, we won't get into the details of it because until it's announced, there's no, not really any, any point. Some, most, almost everyone feel the need to exercise some kind of diplomacy whilst those things are going on, but not him, not him. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of amazing to watch really. He doesn't give a shit, does he? But like, like Carl said there, I mean, we know his physical assets. He's got a great jab. He's very agile, great upper body movement for a big guy. But it's it's his internal stuff that makes him the best. It's his mental strength. His, you know, his mental fortitude. His his 
he, he beats his opponents a lot of them before the fights even happen. He destroys them in the build-up with, the, with the, the mental warfare, the psychological warfare. He's a master at it. And like you say, he's got bowling around Vegas. He doesn't give a shit. <laughs> he doesn't give a shit. It might be that 100 million quid in the bank that's got him that mindset. He just thinks I'm not bothered. There's not many people with that kind of money in the bank, is there? I mean, Floyd Mayweather's one, and he, he doesn't really care less, does he? I remember when he, who was the commentator he had to go out after? He was going to have a fight with Larry Merchant. Larry Merchant, that was it. And he went, If I was younger, I'd kick your ass. He went, You ain't going to do shit. <laughs> like, he's not bothered. And I just think it's that status he's got and the, you know, the, the, the wealth he's got behind him. He, he must, he, your mind must just, just wonder where you just think, you know what? I'm, and he's not horrible with it. I don't think. No, but, but you know as well, Carl. I think it's probably where he came back from. He was obviously in a dark place, wasn't he? When yeah, he blew up yeah. weight and that. When you come back from something like yeah. that, you probably think, "Well, what? I don't care." I think what. it's really hard to not like Tyson Fury. You know, I, I can't. I don't know anyone who doesn't like him. I really don't. Some people might go, "Oh, he's this and he's that," but yeah, he's great. You know what I mean? I don't know. Any, I don't meet anybody who don't like him. And then you've got someone like Anthony Joshua, who's almost a consummate professional and the poster boy and the pinup boy for. For, for the like the brands he's got and the people that sponsor him. And people are a bit like, yeah, I'm not sure about AJ. I'm not really a big fan. I hope Fury wins. Everyone I speak to, it's like 85, 90% people want Tyson Fury to beat AJ. And the closer this fight, and the longer this fight goes on, and the more I look at the two fighters and the more I think about it, the, the, the more chance I give AJ. Because to start with, I was just writing him off and thinking Fury Fury does a job on him and outboxes him and, and whatever, but I don't know now. I just think AJ's big and strong, isn't he? And, and powerful man. And when he puts his shots together, can you imagine AJ backing Fury up and actually throwing six shots? And because Klitschko backed up Fury, but never threw the punches. Imagine AJ letting the shots go and Fury's tucking up with his gloves and trying to keep out of the way and leaning his head back. If somebody like with 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 um, Anthony Joshua's physical attributes and the athleticism that he's got, the strength, and Rob McCracken in his corner as well. He'll have a great game plan. I just give him a chance now. Still think AJ does the job. I still think he wins on points. I don't think he knocks him out like he said he's going to. He said he's going to knock AJ out in two or three rounds. I, I just can't see it. Um, but it's a good fight. I'm disappointed that they've announced there's only one because it would be nice to see two. But I suppose it depends how the first one goes. But Tyson Fury, love him, think he's great. Nothing against AJ. He's... Um, He's a top bloke, a top fighter as well. Proven, proven at top level. He'd give us some great nights, um, AJ has. Um, but I think Fury does the business. I just hope the fight gets made and gets announced. We need a date and a venue and we need to get it done because um, if this one goes away or drags on like Mayweather Pacquiao did, it'll be ruined. It, it, it really will be ruined. Okay, well, we can we can wind it up there. I can hear some dogs barking in the background, and uh, your your presence is required. It's not a dog; it's door. a rat. It's a rat on stilts. It's a little chihuahua. <laughs> <laughs> well, your presence is required elsewhere. Um, oh God, thanks for yes. doing this. It's always it's no, always pleasure, great mate. fun. I was I was going to come on for forty five minutes or an hour, but you know, me and Matt go back a long way. I'm good friends with him. Me and you have become friends of late. You know, you're boxing. I could sit here honestly. I could sit here and just chat away. We could bring up all different subjects. So. Get me on again. The Froch on Fighting podcast has gone a bit slow at the minute. Um, Darren Fletcher, my um, my wingman, is busy with his football. Um, so we've not been doing much. So I need to do one of my podcasts soon. Um, but, you know, I'm happy to come on here and talk and talk boxing and have the crack with you guys anytime. So it's been a pleasure, mate. It's been a pleasure. Well, we were, we were very, very... 
happy to capitalize on uh, capitalize on that. But uh, yeah, Frotchon fighting. I'm sure people who listen to to Macklin's take listen to Frotchon fighting. It's always it's always a good good listen. So anyway, listen, have a safe journey. Uh, enjoy yourself over in in Texas. Uh, Texas come back- is the state. That is the state. <laughs> Proper men out there, cowboys and cows and horses and bulls, <laughs> men with beards and no masks. How many fans have we got in there? I know. 70,000, I think. 70,000 fans. Come on. Get me to Texas. Well, you're going on Wednesday. Going on Wednesday. So like I said, have a good trip. Come back safe. And Thank you. Macklin's Take listeners, thanks for joining us once again. Hope you've hope you've uh, been entertained over the last uh, hour, hour and a half or so. If you could get over to the YouTube channel and, and have a look at that, that would be appreciated. We'll, we'll pull a couple of bits out of this for, for that as well, I'm, I'm sure. And we will catch you all again soon. On the right, babe, but not that Maggie back in town. I said, Jenny Diver, whoa, Sookie Tawdry, look out to Miss Lottie Lynn, and old Lucy Brown. Yes, that line falls on the right, babe, not that Maggie. Back in Podcast Network.